This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Taiwan On Air, Kongzhong Zhipo Taiwan. Hello, everyone. This is Adina Zemanek, one of the hosts of this podcast series. Today, we are here for a book chat. Today's guest is Terry Silvio, who works as research fellow at the Institute of Ethnology of Academia Sinica in Taipei. She is the author of Puppets, Gods and Brands, Theorizing the Age of Animation from Taiwan, a book published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2019. Welcome to our book chat podcast, Terry. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. Thank you very much, Terry, for, for taking part today. Could we start with yourself and your interests? Uh, could you please talk a bit about your previous research interests and uh, how you came up with the idea of writing about animation? Okay. Well, it's um, it's going to say it's a long story, but it's more of an old story <laughs> since it, it took me about 15 years or more to write the book. But I guess we'd start with my my dissertation, my PhD dissertation research, which I did in the 1990s. And I did research on Taiwanese opera and guahi. And in I guess my, my research in, interests were primarily in theater and performance. Um, you know, I was kind of a, a, a theater kid in high school and did amateur theater in uh, in college and graduate school. And when I started choosing a topic for my my dissertation, I wanted to work on a genre of theater where cross-gender performance was kind of a, a tradition and, you know, kind of a normal thing. Uh, because when I was in college and graduate school, I had been in productions um, where, you know, cross-gender role-playing was used as kind of a, a feminist and Brechtian technique. Um, and so I had played male roles uh, in college and found it very uh, difficult. I, I was really bad at it. And I was just interested in systems of uh, training for theater where that was kind of a standard part and, and people weren't sort of starting from scratch. And what did that look like? And what did that mean for, you know, how the audience thought about gender, how both act, you know, the performers and the audience thought about gender. So I did that in the 1990s. I spent uh, several years interviewing Guahi actresses and their fans. And Guahi is a genre where almost all of the roles are played by women, and women who play the male roles are the big stars. And they have a, you know, there's there's a kind of set repertoire of movements and of ways of voicing, uh, as as well of as the the music um, that allows people to kind of switch into roles through kind of habitus, right? They, they learn how to walk in the male role walk, for instance, or, you know, gesture in the male role repertoire. And I was at the time, so at, at, at the time, my dissertation I thought of as kind of testing out uh, whether theory of performance that had developed in, or was being most used in anthropology at that time, which came mostly from Judith Butler. 
which is that performance, uh, repeated performance and habitus are kind of what gender is. And at the time, it was also the height of the AIDS crisis and groups like ACT UP and the Lesbian Avengers and Queer Nation were very influenced by Butler and were, were taking kind of Brechtian gender performance as a kind of powerful political strategy, right? That you use these kind of um, cross-gender performance to make people realize how separate gender as performance is from biological gender or from, you know, just the, the body. You know, and so I was kind of trying to see if it had that kind of that kind of effect in Taiwan and found, of course, you know, somewhat predictably maybe, that it didn't have that effect because it didn't need to because people thought about gender that way already. <laughs> I guess if you if you grow up in a culture where everybody is watching women playing men on stage and television kind of all the time and your mother and your granny and your aunties all all grew up watching that as well. Um, but you tend to think of, of gender as less tied to the body. And also if you believe in reincarnation, which a lot of the, the women I interviewed did. My original, my first research in Taiwan was coming from this very specific like performance studies background. And then when I, I got my job uh, 20 years ago, well, 20 years ago at the Institute of Ethnology, um, I needed to come up with a new topic. And I decided I wanted to do research on hand puppetry, on bodehi, uh, budaishi, because at most temple festivals uh, where Taiwanese opera is performed, often puppetry is performed on another stage at the same, in the same festival. And they're sort of complementary genres, but where as most of the performers and most of the audience are women for guahi, for the, for the opera, for puppetry, it's almost all male performers uh, and the audience was mostly men. Although at the time for kind of temple festival puppetry, it was mostly older men and, and children because it was sort of, uh, you know, losing its popularity. But at the same time, it was getting very popular on television. And like Taiwanese opera had also had a, a big period of popularity on television. And I started watching television puppetry, um, especially um, the Pili puppetry companies series, um, which actually at the time, I think they were, they were on VHS tapes. This is how, how long ago it was. Um, so I was renting VHS tapes and sometimes watching it on, te on television. Um, and these puppetry series were, were just, the first time I saw them, they just kind of blew me away. They were amazing. I mean, I, I turned, I decided to study the television form instead of the temple festival kind of live form um, in part just because my Taiwanese is not good at all. Um, it's gotten even worse since then. And a lot of this, like a lot of the dialogue is kind of antique. It's it's not modern, except for the clowns. They don't speak in, in modern Taiwanese. So I wanted um, to have subtitles. That was a real help. <laughs> but also because just the first time I saw the PV series on television, it, it it blew me away. There was, I mean, we, in, in the U.S., where I'm from, we, we, tend to think of puppetry as like, you know, as something for children, basically, and as puppets as kind of soft and fuzzy. And these were wooden puppets, and they were kind of large and had lots of moving parts. And the stories were wuxia. They were kind of these magical knights flying through the air and battling with swords and shooting things out of their 
out of the palms of their hands and in talking, you know, about Buddhist philosophy and Confucian philosophy. And it was very much not for children, although a lot of children, you know, watch it. But but it's it's a genre like, you know, like the, the Western or, yeah, like an ad- adventure stories. It's It's not just for children. And the way it was filmed just was kind of amazing to me. I mean, I had never seen puppets that were filmed as if they were people in the way that the Pili series did. So I, I started to study the Pili Budaishi from, from there, the Pili puppetry. Yeah, and that's that's kind of how it got started. And um, yeah, I guess it's one of the, the, I started to work with the fans and one of the first things I, I realized was that I had been completely kind of wrong in terms of gender about the fandom. Because while the puppetry that's performed at temple festivals, the audience was mostly male, for the PV series, um, by the time I started doing my research on it, which is you know 2002, 2003, um, the audience was actually about in terms of if you have, if you just kind of like the the more passive audience, like people who just watch the series, it was about half and half. I did some surveys at video stores to to find out, and about half women, half men, um, and kind of an age range between like high school and people in their forties, but. When I went to fan club events and the people running the fan clubs and organizing fan club events and, you know, s- spending a lot of time with other fans, uh, most of those fans were were women. So it was, um, and I wound up interviewing about at least half the people I interviewed were women. So it was, yeah, very, very different from what I expected. I see. Thank you. We'll get back to the uh, Pili puppetry and the... Taiwanese mode of animation in a moment. But first, I would like to ask you a question related to the framework of your book. Namely, you talk about our times as the age of animation. And you also talk about animation as a concept useful for thinking with. So could you define the age of animation and explain the usefulness of it as a conceptual framework? Okay. (laughs) Big question. Well, because I came from performance studies, and sort of came to animation in, by discovering how it was different from performance and discovering how a- animators, or in, you know, in, in my case, mostly puppeteers and puppetry fans, thought about what they were watching and, and what they were doing. And, you know, I realized it was very different from the way that uh, Guahi actresses and Guahi fans thought about what was going on. So... I kind of was reading some some performance theory and realizing that performance theory was very much kind of developed between like the end of World War II and the 1990s, kind of hit this peak of influence in I think the 1990s and was developed mostly in the in North America. And I was just kind of coming up against, I'm not sure I would call them inadequacies, but but Places where using performance theory might make you ignore more than it would actually illuminate. Um, so I started thinking about animation as this kind of complement to performance and animation as kind of a complementary process. Right? So, so if performance, uh, performance theory is that the performance is primarily about creating self-identity, Right, starting from from Irving Goffman's The Performance of Self in Everyday Life and going through Judith Butler's Gender Trouble. And um, so it's it's basically about kind of learning roles 
and um, kind of in terms of psychology, like interjecting roles, psychically interjecting them, and then kind of expressing those roles and making them readable to other people through the body, uh, through movement, through voicing, through dress, things like that. So the focus is mostly on uh, performing the self, creating you know, an, an image of the self and a sense of the self, like a psychic sense of the self. And I was finding that, that animation fans, in, including not just the puppetry fans, but also fans of Japanese manga and anime, were not really interested in constructing themselves or creating their identities. They were interested in participating in creating these characters that they saw as outside of themselves. And one of the things that kind of alerted me to this was when I would ask questions about, you know, identification, like, do you identify with this character or how do you, or I would ask puppeteers about, you know, getting into character or cosplayers uh, who are cosplaying puppetry and animation characters. Like, how do you get into the character? How do you like psychically, you know, become the character? Um, And they just thought that was the, they didn't understand. They thought that was just a strange question. They didn't, they didn't get what I was talking about. So that kind of gave me a hint that something something different was going on, and also um, where the focus was in the fandom, right? So the the Peely fans were kind of more like manga and anime fans, and that the focus was really on the characters, not the people creating the characters. Whereas you know when I had been working with the the opera fans, they were totally focused on the actresses and really didn't care what characters they were playing. So you know, kind of very very basic differences in that way. So I, I kind of started to think about animation as a complement to performance and then kind of setting up the contrast so that if performance is mostly about constructing the self, um, animation is mostly about um, constructing others, you know, constructing these, you know, other social beings that you can interact with. Um, and whereas performance is about embodiment, you know, animation is more about you know, giving life to these non-human things, right? Usually, you know, maybe a puppets, but maybe also visual images, right? Like in, in cinema animation. Um, but generally projecting, projecting aspects of humanity outwards from yourself rather than taking them in. So I talked about the age of animation um, and mainly because... I'd been reading John McKenzie's Performer Else, and McKenzie argues that after World War II, the paradigm of performance replaced the paradigm of discipline in the U.S. So he's basically positing that a kind of age of performance started in the second half of the 20th century. And I thought, well, I think that age might be, I don't know, maybe not ending, but being superseded a little bit by the age of animation, um, because I was just finding that the, the sheer amount of performance in Taiwan, especially since I had, you know, first come in the 90s and, you know, been going back and forth, but basically left for several years and then came back in 2002. And and one of the changes I noticed in Taipei, I mean, aside from, you know, having the new subway system that made everything so much nicer. um, But one of the changes was just the amount of cartoon characters that were just everywhere. including like cute Japanese logo characters and manga and animes just kind of all, all, all over. And the Peely series becoming, you know, more and more popular. Um, 
they had their own television station by the by the time I got back. So like there were more of these kind of virtual non-human characters in everyday life than there had been before. And I thought that's, you know, probably not a coincidence. I mean, it's it was true in Japan as well. And it seemed to be true even, you know, even even in the US and and Europe that there was kind of more manga and anime around that uh, graphic novels were, were becoming more important. There were, um, you know, the proportion of animated features that Hollywood was pulling, putting out every year was was getting to be kind of more in relation to live action features. Plus, you had all these other areas where animation, the kind of giving of life or, you know, imbuing objects with with human characteristics was happening like in robotics. You know, there was just so much research going on in robotics and all kinds of new, new robots, um, new computer interfaces, you know, smartphones were developed right when I started doing my research, um, you know, and Siri, right? Like these machines that, that can talk to you and interact with you and gauge your moods and it's robots specifically designed to interact with elderly people. Like all, all of that kind of stuff was, was just, so much more around um so so basically yeah I, I thought that maybe i could posit an age of animation animation as something that didn't replace the you know the age of performance but was becoming kind of more evident and and more popular because certain questions were becoming or or in in tandem with with the fact that certain questions were becoming kind of more necessary to ask. What is life? What is intelligence? What makes humans human? Right? In, in the face of um, all of these non-human things that were, you know, approaching being human or were more and more designed to seem human. Yes, I had. Uh, uh, I was inspired actually by your book, and I had an interesting conversation with my students in class about it, uh, about oh. animation. And uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, now I would like to ask uh, about uh, Taiwan, because you already mentioned Japan, and when we talk about animation in a, in a, an Asian context, uh, it's most easy, um, easiest probably to to associate animation with Japan. So could you talk a bit about the positioning of Taiwan and its significance, uh, well, um, how it is significant, how it is interesting with regard to animation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose <laughs> in, in part, the book was written a bit for, for Japanese studies audiences. I mean, I, it was written for, you know, a general audience and for anthrop I wanted anthropologists to work everywhere to read it, but um I was kind of frustrated in particular with Japanese studies because I found that it was kind of very difficult to get people to take uh, in Japanese studies to to pay, you know, what I considered enough attention to Taiwan. But partly that's because most of the animation theory that was being published in, in you know, the 2000s, 2010s was coming from Japanese studies, or at least the, the things that I found interesting. I mean, there's some stuff in North America and Europe, a lot on um, on Disney, on, you know, kind of very specific case studies, but actually trying to theorize animation. You know, most of that was coming from Japanese studies. 
So Taiwan, being in Taiwan was was a real blessing in some ways because it allowed me both to really engage with that theory and to be able to understand it because there's so much Japanese manga and anime in Taiwan. Um, 90% at least of the manga on sale and you know manga stores in, in Taiwan is Japanese. Um, and most of the animation on television, with the exception of the, of the Peely puppets, um, is also Japanese. So Taiwanese young people are watching that all the time. And uh, Taiwanese, you know, college and graduate students are reading Japanese animation theory, right? They're all reading, you know, Azuma and um, Otsuka and, and all those people. So, and also Taiwan is, um, you know, has another influence, even though in popular culture, it's, it's a little bit less of an influence, but kind of American culture is also influenced and it's also an influence. And, um, you know, Pixar and Disney and, you know, Western animated films also sometimes get popular in Taiwan. They tend to be less popular than the Japanese, but but they, you know, some of them can be quite popular. And a lot of the um, just media theory coming out of North America and Europe is also being taught, including by me, right, in Taiwan. So in Taiwan, you have you have this group of like both fans and, you know, producers of, of popular culture who are really engaged with these theories that that are coming out of you know the two main kind of animation producing countries the, the US and, and Japan but Taiwan also has its own tradition um, well it has many of its own traditions um, I was focused mainly on the Chinese tradition um, particularly uh, Chinese folk religion which has been kind of practiced continuously on Taiwan uh, since Han Chinese people started coming to Taiwan in, in the 17th century. You know, so it's been a much more, more continuous than in mainland China. So I found that there were ideas about animation and connections between puppets and um, shenxiang, the, the statues of gods that are made for worship in Taiwan, which was a very different way or at least provided a, a diff different way of thinking about animation and especially like like in terms of kind of giving you different metaphors for what's going on when animation is happening right because in in the abrahamic traditions and scott cutler kershaw has this really good book about like all the ways that that puppetry has become a metaphor and kind of the changes in actual puppetry practice and how they link up with these changes in, in the metaphor, but that puppetry and um, if you use, you know, kind of puppetry as the sort of core metaphor for animation in general, the puppetry is often seen as kind of imitating God, right? Like you're, you're playing God, right? Because God breathed life and, and a soul into Adam. And, and that was the first act of, you know, of creating the human and all puppetry is kind of like modeled on that. So that you often get metaphors where puppetry is about control, right? About, um, you know, it can be negative. It's like manipulation or it can be, um, you know, sometimes more positive. But often the issues are about control versus free will uh, that come up, you know, in the, the Pinocchio story, right? Like the there's this kind of tension between the creator and the createe. Right or the the animator and the animatee, so so you get that in a, in a lot of kind of Western puppetry and stories about puppetry, 
Um, and in Japan, you kind of have a very different tradition, right? You have the, like the, the Shinto animist tradition, as well as Buddhist traditions, but mainly the, the Shinto tradition of, of animism where kind of everything has a kami, everything has a spirit. Um, and this is not just, um, you know, animals and natural objects like mountains or rivers, wind, but, but it can be things like spoons and, you know, car tires, like everything. <laughs> um, and I found like in the folk Taoist tradition, you have a very, very different ideas about what kinds of things have, can have a spirit and how they get that spirit um, and kind of what that means in terms of power relations. Um, so it, it, because there is this Chinese like folk Taoist tradition, it's um, it kind of takes you out of that loop where you kind of have this really simplified East-West uh, contrast, but it's really just Japan and the U.S. And I thought Taiwan is a really great place to study animation because it it's both, you know, engaged with that East-West loop, but also kind of has this these things that kind of stick out and tell you uh, it's not it's not just that, right? It's not just that diet. There are a lot of other possibilities for ways to think about what's going on in animation. I see. So we already talked about the, the significance of Taiwan, the positioning and significance of Taiwan. Uh, you already introduced to our audience um, Pili Puppetry. Uh, you mentioned that you interviewed uh, fans of, of Pili Puppetry. And you also mentioned that the Taiwanese mode of animation is related to uh, Chinese folk religion. You also talked a bit about the difference uh, between Shinto, the Japanese Shinto, and um, uh, the Taiwanese animation. Could you give a couple of more examples um, of how the uh, Taiwanese mode of animation works? Sure. I should say first that, that this is just um, the kind of Han Chinese Taiwanese mode of animation. Um, so that the, the Yuan Zhongmin, the, the indigenous peoples in Taiwan have, um, you know, different religious traditions and therefore kind of different ways of thinking about animation, um, which I'm not qualified to speak about. So, um, but I don't want, you know, to give the impression that I'm thinking of Taiwan as this kind of homogenous and all Chinese um, place. There are influences kind of coming from everywhere and the indigenous ones are, are important as well. But but for what I found with the Pili puppetry, because it is in, you know, it's in Hokkien and it's, um, and Budaishi, this genre of, of hand puppetry, uh, has kind of long historical links to um, the Chinese folk religion and specifically like kind of the Taoist part of that tradition. That That's basically what I'm talking about. So basically what happened was when I started interviewing Pili puppeteers and Pili fans. I found they used a lot of like religious language and religious imagery when talking about the puppets. And they would say things like, oh, you know, I, I got, I bought a puppet because you can buy like copies of the puppet characters that are in these Pili televised serials. And, and they also kind of make dolls of the characters and things. So, so they would say things like, oh, I bought a puppet and I brought it home and it felt like I was bringing a shenxiang, like an, like an icon, uh, home from the temple to, to, to put it on the altar and worship at home. Um, and they, they use some other, you know, religious terms, like the, the measure word in Chinese 
uh, in, in both uh, Mandarin and um, and Thai for for a puppet is Zun, right? So it, it's the same measure word for a puppet and for a Shanxiang, for for an icon that you worship. Um, so so there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of historical connections. Um, some people have you know worshipped puppets as icons, like using you can use the puppet as an icon to um, to worship or we'd say like bye bye to worship it. Um, and there are of course lots of puppet shows about gods, about you know uh, Taoist, mostly Taoist, some Buddhist gods, and. Like I said, puppetry is performed at temple festivals all the time. So, so there's this kind of religious connection. And what's interesting is that that the puppetry, like the puppeteers and the puppetry fans, were using religious language in a way that um, the opera actresses and fans never did. Even though opera is actually performed more frequently at temple festivals than puppetry, um, and it's also you know it's a form of offering to the gods and their are also lots of operas about gods and immortals. In theory, it has the same kinds of religious con- connections. And embodiment is like carving a wooden figure of the god. What are then the differences in approaching icons and in approaching puppets? The differences are, are a little more obvious. The icons go through rituals to invite the god's power into them and the god or invite the god in basically and um it can be kind of vague people have different interpretations of what exactly it means to have a god inside and whether the god is there always or whether they sometimes go about their business and leave the icon but basically people will will tell you that the, the obvious difference is that um the icon has ling it it has um divine power it can it can actually have direct effects in the world, right? It has a magical power, like Lin Weiping would, 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 and many scholars of, of uh, Taiwanese religion would just call it, you know, it's magical power, it's supernatural power, uh, which puppets should not have, right? And a lot of religious um, experts, like temp- temple festival, uh, or temple, sorry, like temple committee members, Know, the people who kind of run the temples. If when I went to interview them about you know about Shenxiang and puppets and dolls and things like that, and and they would tell me that it's very dangerous to perform the rituals, especially the opening of the eyes, which is the final part of the ritual that invites the god in. Uh, it's very dangerous to do that to any object which is not made specifically for that purpose, which is not a real Shenxiang, um, because anything that's in the shape of a human being or like anthropomorphized, any anthropomorphic object is potentially open to having spirits come into it. Uh, and the danger is that you, if you are performing this ritual in some haphazard way or as a joke, that you won't know what the spirit is that, that's coming in, right? So it probably won't be a god. <laughs> if what you're using is not a real Shenxiang. So I had, uh, when, I, when I did interviews, a lot of the fans of Pili or, or people who collected puppets and people who collected dolls, I did a lot of interviews with collectors. I found a lot of times that um, 
their parents or their grandparents would make them give away their collections or hide their collections um, because they were afraid of precisely this, right? That evil spirits would be attracted to the human figurines and kind of warm their way in there and kind of spread bad influence throughout the house. The differences are a little, at least to Taiwanese people, are, are, are kind of much more obvious. It's the similarities that um, people, that tend not to be conscious until you start asking people about it. Now, could we uh, change the topic to my favorite one? Namely, uh, because in your book, you also discuss the cutification of gods in Taiwan. And I found this topic most interesting because I had, <laughs> I had been aware of the existence of these cute god figurines in, in Taiwan. But weren't, well, I wasn't able to relate to them in a, in a meaningful way. That's because I, I found the application of cute to the realm of religion as kind of inappropriate. Uh, but, but actually, you show that the emergence of such figurines reflects um, recent changes in religious behavior. So could you, could you elaborate a bit on this, please? Sure. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, it's, just, like, it's, it's kind of amazing how much Taiwan has changed my taste and how much higher my tolerance is for the cute and the sweet than it used to be. I remember like the first time I heard Dung Lee June and I thought, oh my God, it's so sweet. Like her voice is so sweet. My teeth hurt. I can't stand. Now I just love Dung Lee June. Um, kind of same with, with cute, <laughs> with cute and gods. So um, basically, if, if you look at the kind of history of Chinese religious art and especially the way that gods are represented, you know, you'll see that the, the, the way that gods are represented is changes fairly frequently. You know, over over the since the Han Dynasty, like all the all the different movements of art and the you know influence of Indian Indian art and Japanese art and, and whatever. So this is not um, this new wave of kind of cute aesthetics becoming really common in representations of the gods isn't isn't really that much of a new thing, and it's also happening in Japan. I, I I'm pretty sure it started happening in Taiwan first, but it's it's definitely been happening in Japan. And there are temples that have, you know, used cute um, or kind of, you know, moe girl versions of goddesses, for instance, to attract younger, younger worshippers. The cutification of the gods, there's sort of a lot of factors that sort of kind of overdetermine that this was going to be the next trend. Right. And one is that the temples were kind of losing worshipers, right? That there was a perception. I, I don't know how true it is, actually. I didn't find it to be as quite as true as people thought. But that the people running the temples were really afraid that the younger generation of Taiwanese people, you know, the people born after the 80s or like in and after the 80s, the the, the the generations that grew up after the end of martial law, basically, that they, you know, there was kind of mass movement to the cities for study and then for work. So, I mean, you're getting this in a lot of countries, right? Like the, the but that the, the countryside, like farming is, is kind of dying out. Um, and now even industry has been kind of largely moved overseas. So the younger generation is, needs, you know, more education and they're doing kind of more like 
you know, high tech work and high end service work and finance and things like that. So they're mostly urban and most of them, like the majority of younger Taiwanese people identify as not religious. Right. Um, although when, when I did interview people, I found um, that not religious was not the same as atheists. Like very few people said they were atheists, but a lot of people said they have no religion, right? but they still do kind of worship practices, at least when they're, they're at home. But anyway, there's the perception among temple officials that they were losing the younger generation, that the younger generation was not coming to worship. They weren't participating in the temple. They weren't donating to the temple. They weren't like joining temple activities. And they wanted to bring young people as well as tourists. They wanted to get some, you know, tourist money in there back to the temple. And so they, they wanted to find something that would appeal to young people. And the Japanese kawaii aesthetic has been very popular in kind of commercial goods for, you know, decades. So that was one idea. The trend for cuteness, I, I mean, I've, it does go back quite, quite far. And it's never been foreign, really, to, to Chinese religion. I mean, dating all the way back there, there are certain gods that have always been portrayed and thought of as cute as ke'ai. Right, they often, you know, that will be described as ke'ai, like, um, you know, Tudigong, the the earth god, um, and the the god of wealth are often described as cute, and especially like in New Year's posters, they're um, really often portrayed as you know with like big round cheeks, and they're always smiling. Milufo, um, the the Maitreya Buddha, is also usually smiling and cute, and you know, with his round belly. So it's. It's not that there aren't cute gods. There are some gods that are, but there have always been gods that have definitely not been cute, right? Like the city god who judges the souls of the dead. Um, he's kind of scary. Um, and he had not been thought of as cute before, you know, the, the past 10 years or so, right? So, so the, the cute trend basically started... Like I said, well, I guess like I saw the kind of earliest versions, which I thought of as something different from the traditional cute gods. In the early 2000s, when I started seeing sort of in some stationary stores and some kind of temple tourist market areas, like little keychains of the gods represented in the cute style. Um, and they struck me as different because first the, the cute style used was kind of more influenced by the Japanese like Hello Kitty style uh, than previously, but also because some of these gods like, you know, General Seven and General Eight, like this, these kind of scary or authoritative gods were being cutified, which I hadn't, hadn't seen before then. And then you've got the real takeoff. In 2007, the, the Family Mart convenience stores wanted to do, you know, a toy giveaway. And so that people would buy stuff and then they would collect like stickers, like you, you spend, you know, a hundred NT and you get one sticker. And then if you spend, you know, 2000 NT and you get 20 stickers, then you can exchange them for a little toy. And they've been doing this kind of promotional activity for many years, but the toys had always been of either Western or Japanese characters. And the CEO of Family Mart in Taiwan decided that he wanted to do kind of local culture version of a toy. They wanted to give away toys, but they wanted them to be Taiwanese 
looking toys, you know, the Taiwanese flavor. So we hired a design company and they did some focus group testing. And, you know, they had they had some options. They could have, you know, they were thinking of doing using indigenous people or Taiwanese baseball teams um, or, you know, popular foods, right? Like night market foods. And all of those got used eventually. <laughs> but for, for this promotional toy set, um, they decided to use gods, right? The, the gods from, from the Buddhist and Taoist traditions that are most, that are commonly worshipped in Taiwan. Um, and one of the reasons I heard, at least from some people who, who later were making other versions of these god toys, um, was, was that it's because, you know, gods don't have copyrights, right? Like you can't do Mickey Mouse because Disney will come after you, but, right, like Matsu doesn't have, um, doesn't have a copyright. So that was one advantage, but also that they were easily recognizable was another. So they actually did focus groups to find out which gods were the most recognizable. Uh, and they, they chose a set and then they, they made little toys of them. And the style of the toys kind of combined the Japanese, like Kiara style, like the, the cute style of like Hello Kitty, where they're kind of very blank. They don't have noses, for instance, they have very few features but not entirely, like the color scheme was kind of more like European. They also looked a little bit like, you know, the Playmobil figures, right? So it's a kind of blended Japanese and um, European toy aesthetics. But they were definitely cute. They were definitely kai. That was sort of the goal. And they were huge success. They, they really upped the, um, the profits for Family Mart for at least a quarter. And it was mostly office workers, urban office workers who were collecting them. And that, the success of that, especially with young urban people, made the temples um, decide that they should start making cute versions of their gods as well, um, because that was their goal, was to attract just that group of people, right? Like middle class, young, and urban, and to bring them back to the temples. So a bunch of temples in Taiwan started making their own toys of um, the gods that were worshipped in their temples. So yeah, I started interviewing people who designed these toys and then the people who, who collected them. And yeah, I found that like most changes in the visual style of how gods are represented, that change was going along with changes in belief, right? Um, as, as that they usually go together, right? The, the, the sign and the reverend. So the theory on the part of the people who commissioned the toys was generally that the cute style creates, well, actually everybody agreed. The collectors agreed to, everybody agreed, like literally everybody agreed that cuteness produces intimacy. It creates a feeling of closeness and warmth and friendliness that other styles don't, right? Especially like realist style wouldn't do that at all. And so Making cute versions of the gods was a way to make younger people feel more intimate with the gods and kind of more relaxed and to feel that the gods, these cute gods would, would kind of make them feel happy and would have like what they call it, a healing effect, which is um, supposed to be one of the, the main functions of kind of the Japanese cute style for you know, that's used to sell a lot of goods that are called like healing. And I did find find that a lot of younger people 
when I compared what they were telling me about how they thought about gods and their experiences of religion, that the way they were talking about deities, especially like Taoist and Buddhist deities, was very different from the way that Taiwanese people had talked about the gods in like ethnography is written in the 70s and the 1960s and 1970s, right? So there's a, a generational shift. And, and of course, there's a lot that hasn't changed. But one of the main things I noticed that has changed is, for instance, what constitutes the manifestation of Ling, of, of divine power. More traditionally, or for like the older generation in the 70s, you would kind of test whether a god was powerful or whether, well, not necessarily the god, but whether the specific icon that you were worshiping, the specific shenshang that you, that, that you were worshiping, whether that shenshang really had power in it uh, based on like your, on them being able to achieve miracles, like if, or to answer your prayers. Like if you, if you pray to a shenshang and your wishes came true, the things that you requested came true, then you would say, okay, that that Shenzhen works, right? It has a thing. But for younger people, I mean, they still, a lot of them still had that or, or still thought of that as kind of how you, how you know whether um, a Shenzhen has Ling or whether a God has, has Ling or has a connection to you. Um, but one of the differences was that they, they would talk about the effect of Ling and the effect of, worshiping the gods and as being like in the same ways in some ways that they would talk about cute characters like manga characters or logo characters so that if you felt content and calm and you know seeing this image of the god whether it was like a, a real shenxiang or or a toy would make you kind of feel like happy Right. It, um, it was more about mood than actual objective things happening in the world. Right. So you would, people would, would think that a God was efficacious um, if when they worship that God, it improved their mood, which was I hadn't really you know, seen in older ethnographies. Also, that just the visual representation of Shenxiang was much more of a factor for younger people in where they would go to worship. They um, they wanted to worship in worship Shenxiang that they found attractive, um, that they thought were beautiful and like artistically carved. Whereas that was, I mean, it wasn't not a factor, but it was less of a factor with older generations. Um, and they thought of the gods often, or spoke of them kind of more in terms of personalities. Again, that's not a new thing, but, and it's not something that, that didn't exist before. It certainly did, but there was kind of, it felt like sort of a, a more of a quantitative change, like more talk about, about personalities when talking about deities. Yeah. So, so that there's just um, kind of a, a lot of overlap in terms of function and effect between, you know, worshiping actual Shenxiang and kind of having these cute versions of the gods around you. 
RC, thank you. Thank you very much for introducing these big, really big topics from your book to the audience. There is much more in the book, such as about cosplay uh, or using the framework of animation to discuss more unexpected maybe topics such as national identity, but I'm just mentioning these here as a teaser for the audience to discover by themselves. Uh, and I would like to, to end uh, with, a, with a final question, namely, could you disclose some, uh, some present and future directions? What are you doing now uh, after having published this book and, and uh, what do you plan to do in the, in, in the future in terms of research? Okay, well, um, many people, <laughs> what I thought I was going to be doing is not what I want, I'm actually doing because of the pandemic. I had planned to be doing research all over Southeast Asia and in China, and you know that that is not happening. But right now, I'm I'm kind of working on two things. One one is a project I've been doing on and off for quite a while, and you know, really need to publish some of this stuff. I've I've got reams of field notes that I haven't worked on, but I've been working on art toys, which are these kind of character toys made by designers that aren't connected. They're not like tie-in products to manga or to anime or anything like that. They're, um, and they're sold sort of somewhere in between toys and art pieces. Uh, and the Taipei Toy Festival is one of the, the biggest in the world every year. Um, so I've been working on that for a long time and I'm, I'm still kind of working on that, interviewing designers and, and collectors and kind of trying to get a sense what what happens to the figurine or like the, the anga as I, like a, when it's detached from narrative, um, when it's detached from this whole kind of multimedia franchise narrative model and where, where, you know, are they still, do people still think about them as characters and in what way, um, if they do, where does the value of these objects come from? Because there's a lot of kind of speculation in them and trading and the prices go up and down. And I'm kind of interested in, you know, how people assign value to that. And then the other thing that I've been working on kind of unexpectedly is like one of those side projects that blew up and taking over my whole life is that um, when we were in our soft lockdown for a few months last year, I started watching a lot of TV <laughs> I started watching a lot of Chinese dangai ju, which are dramas adapted from danmei or boys love web novels. And these are, some of them also have um, anime versions. And I found that the fandom uh, is very similar to the puppetry and manga fandom of you know, boys love fans that I've been um, doing field work with when I was doing the work on the, the animation book. And I was interested because there's just been this big explosion of kind of live action versions of boys' love stories. And uh, I think that the position of the, the they're, they're called, you know, funu in, in Taiwan or uh, fujoshi in Japanese or um, slash fans or shippers in, in English now. Um, but women who are really interested in stories about, you know, love and sex between men. And, and fictional men, <laughs> not not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean an interest in actual, like, gay men around them, but more in these kind of idealized fic fictional uh, stories about um, men, you know, falling in love with each other. So, what I found when I was working, or this is kind of in general, is that that a lot of people who work on BL have found this is that that a lot of the 
the reason that the genre is attractive is partly, you know, for women who are both the creators and the, you know, the producers and consumers of, of BL, it allows for a position that's kind of outside of the relationship. Like you, you are in this kind of voyeuristic position, right? Like you don't, like I, I would interview women who said they don't really like uh, heterosexual romance stories because they feel sort of forced to identify with the female character. Um, whereas when both characters are male, they they're, they don't feel they have to identify with anybody, right? And they can also feel like they're more sort of watching and, and sometimes or controlling the story. It's much more of an animatorly position, which goes, you know, which, which kind of made sense when it was almost all manga and anime and just novels, right? Like non-flesh and blood media. But now there's all this live action and I'm just kind of interested in what that means. Uh, so I've been interviewing fans of these serials, um, mostly in Taiwan, but you know, a few online in China as well to kind of get a sense of why, um, yeah, what did it, you know, what difference it makes when you have actual bodies um, and actual and actors, you know, and how people think about actors because it, it feels actually um, at least with some of the, the people that I'm interviewing kind of very different take than that of like what, what I kind of um, was used to when I was much younger in the U S and um, you know, sl slashers or shippers would be focused on live action series, but, um, but it was much more focused on the characters and here there's this kind of, um, you know, it's, it's like both the characters and the actors. So like this kind of real person fan fiction is, is, become a much more popular thing. So, so I'm just kind of interested in that. Like what happens when you're reintroducting performance into a subculture that largely started from kind of, it's kind of animation based. So, okay. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm up to <laughs> these days. <laughs> Watching a lot of TV. <laughs> Very much looking forward to reading about these two directions. Thank you very much again, Terry. I do appreciate. Thank you very much for, for taking part in this podcast. Once again, I'm, I'm encouraging the audiences to, to reach for your, for your very interesting book, as well as your other research into opera. And also, you have also uh, a couple of very cool pieces about comics. So uh, looking forward to reading your, about your future research and uh, encouraging the audiences to, to reach for your existing pieces. Thank you very much again. Well, thank you. Really nice to talk to you again. <laughs> Thank you.